0: Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what? when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one-year-old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out StandingStoneSupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. GDIY20 at checkout to save
1: 20%. You know, I was smart enough to know if she looked like she was getting overwhelmed with anything, I'd just back off and, you know, try something different. Um, she, you know, she eventually went on to do, she was an NA Prize 1, 112, too, and, you know, she got some retrieving titles and things like that. And, you know, once, once I figured her out, she was fine. But it was a matter of, I think, a dog like that, you literally just can't. Some people can't, shouldn't have their hands on dogs like that because I think they would ruin them.
0: Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird. Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out uplandguncompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying I couldn't have missed that bird all right everybody welcome back to another week of gdiy presented by standing stone supply this week we have camille rice with timber doodle on the line. camille how you doing
1: i'm good how are you nick
0: oh living the dream as always go ahead and start off with the obvious kind of tell everybody where you're calling from and what it is that you do
1: well i am in leroy michigan which is south of cadillac if anyone knows michigan so i'm northern michigan And I am sitting in my yard right now and uh, at raise wimes and I've had wimes my whole life.
0: Wow. So how long have you been in wimes? I know you said that you've had it your whole life. I I mean, are we going all the way back to childhood with dogs or when did you get into it?
1: My parents had them before I was born.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So literally your entire life. (laughs)
1: Literally. Well, I take that back because there was a time in my 30s when I was showing horses heavily that I did not hunt much. And I did not have a wine in my life, but that's about the only time. So I think they got their first wine in either forty nine or fifty.
0: Oh wow. So they get they yeah. kinda go back to around about the time that they started coming to the States really. Yes, they do. So for those that don't don't really know the the backstory of Wimes, and I know very little about it, you know, I've read a, a few articles, which, you know, in this day and age makes me an expert, but uh, <laughs> why don't you go ahead and kind of go over some of the history of the breed and, you know, when they started coming over here and, and what people found attractive about the gray ghost?
1: So the breed was, was developed probably around the late 1800s when most, you know, gun dog breeds were coming out, um, originated in Germany. About probably after World War II was when the first one came to the U.S. And that's that's a whole sketchy story, really. But um, it was a dog named Kazar that came that they thought was a mixed breed. And I believe it was now. I think they've proven that it was. And so that was a problem. But then Silvers started to make their way to the U.S. And I think by the, the end of the 40s, they were established. And people like my parents were able to get their hands on a wine. I do know that when I was a child, I do remember this, several of my relatives also bred wine, so they were probably a part of the problem of the whole overbreeding type thing because people just didn't know what they know now. So I I would say probably late 50s and 60s was when you started to see the wine breed get into trouble where there were just so many. And and you probably know that when they first came to the U.S., they were supposed to be this amazing wonder dog and could do all these things and track and hunt and just perfect and no training. Well, obviously that turned out to be not true. They're dogs. So the sixties and probably seventies, there were a whole bunch of wands that got into the hands of people that just bred the heck out of them. Um, rescues started to pop up. Um, they weren't breeding for anything but just breeding probably to make puppies and, and sell them. So there was no regard to temperament or hunting ability. And the breed suffered for that. And I think, you know, we've we've come around. I I do believe now. I mean, I'm looking at today that there are people out there that are really dedicated to putting wines on the right hands. I mean, there is a quite the divide between show and field, but I do think that the people that are trying to create hunting dogs are doing their best to create solid hunting dogs. I, that, that's my whole goal with these dogs is to put hunting dogs in the hands of hunters.
0: Yeah. And, and that's what's really one of the one of the real big fascinating things about Weimaraners that I find interesting is is it's very similar to other breeds, but like you said, when they first came over, they were kind of billed as as the wonder dog, but and, and then it went down. But then it's like they've had two or three different spikes of popularity and and a lot of breeds don't survive like the first spike in popularity after like a disney movie or something but wimes it seems like they they come up and then they go back down after you know the the truth comes out and they're not a wonder dog but then a few decades later they come up and then they go back down is it in your opinion is it really for the same reason every time it's kind of like they're they're kind of a uh uh a prisoner of their own success almost. It's like every time they start doing anything good, it gets blown way out of proportion and they gain in popularity and then they go right back down.
1: That that's part of it. Yeah, I do think you hit the nail on the head there. I, I don't think Wegman helped us either, really, because it, it got the dog out there, got them on calendars. Everyone thought, Oh, look at these beautiful dogs. I gotta have one. Well, not realizing these are hunting dogs. They they were, you know, raised in Germany to hunt fur as well. So You know, some do well with cats, some do not. I don't have a cat for that, you know, for the very reason it would be indoor hunting at my house, so, (laughs) and I don't, you know, I've I've seen my first wife as an adult was, uh, she was raised with a cat, and she was fine with a cat, but there was a day that I was hunting with her, and she's locked on point, and I'm thinking, okay, she's locked way solid, this isn't a bird, and I go in to move up, and this cat climbed up my leg so i I knew, I realized then that she was fine with cats inside, but outside she would not be fine with a cat i, I don't she didn't chase the cat when it climbed because she had really solid pointing instincts she just kept pointing but I don't think it would have ended well had she gone to chase the cat. That was the first time I realized that yeah, she'd kill one,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean. People don't think about that all the time is I'm getting a bird dog, uh, but really you, you, you have to know the breed. I mean, it's they have a drive of some sort. So when you start talking about, you know, living with a cat indoors, to your point, I've seen it time and time again to where they're fine with even birds inside. You know, they get used to birds in a cage or whatever, but obviously you put them in a different situation and uh, that can turn around really quickly.
1: Right. That's true.
0: Yep. So kind of walk me through, you said fast forward to today, it seems like they're kind of growing in popularity again. Uh, what is it that we're doing right this time around that wasn't done on the first couple rises in popularity that we we refer to?
1: You know, I, I can't, uh, that's, that's a tough one because even I wonder about it. Right now, it seems like there are so many running NAVDA events and a lot of hunt tests and a lot of field trials I'm not really sure what pushed pushed it this time. It, it just seems like all of a sudden everyone wants a wine. I'm getting a lot of calls, and, and I only sell the hunters. If you checked out my website, mm-hmm. you know that. Yep. Um, I, I am getting a lot of calls and have sold a lot of puppies to people that have had other breeds and want to try a wine. So that's been interesting in the last probably five or six years. I've got quite a few that have gone out to people that have had other breeds. And, you know, I never really asked people why, but they said, you know, I just like them.
0: That was my next question is like, do you really get to talk to them? And is there like a common thread that is appealing the breed to other people or not?
1: Well, I think people are seeing better ones. I, I think people, you know, at NABDA tests are seeing whimes and are looking, you know, much better. I, I know that they're not the stats. They've gotten a lot better. And, you know, even in the NI, NA stuff, there's a lot of NA breeders awards every year. There's still only one. Invitational Breeders Award and one Utility Breeders Award, and I've got that. Um, but there are a lot of people running WIMES and, and going for those Breeders Awards, which is nice.
0: And so what is what has... What have you focused on as as a breeder to like you just said, you, you have a couple breeders awards at the invitational and utility level? So like what what have you prioritized in your kennel and your program that has been such a success with with a breed that is known more or less of good luck finding a, a good hunting companion?
1: So I, I think I mentioned briefly that I, I come from an equine background as well and I ran a an Arabian breeding farm. And I had a stallion, and I did very, very well as an amateur training my own horses as well. So I probably look at breeding a little bit different. I'm not necessarily a paper-to-paper breeder. I actually look at the traits that I want to improve on. When I got Cody, and this would have been over 20 years ago, she came from a line that solid field ability, not a huge running dog, but a very you know, uh, business-like dog. I mean, she was a hell of a bird dog, really and she was solid on woodcock great on pheasant probably not the best grouse dog i ever owned but she she did a good job and she never stopped hunting but she wasn't a great swimmer she it was really hard to get her in the water and i noticed that that's where she was lacking she was not a natural water dog i had to make that and bring that out of her so from that point on i shed a cup i i did run her some of her pups in in natural ability but it was always a struggle to get them swimming so i decided at that point that i was going to concentrate on bringing more water love to my line. And that's what I did. I started breeding to males that had a lot of water love in addition to other things that I liked about them, like temperament, hunting ability. We still won't use a male that we haven't seen in action. Even if it's from a show line, we will hunt over that dog. So I really tried hard to bring water love into what I'm doing. And, you know, occasionally like I had two pups not swim this in their natural ability test, but it wasn't really the genetics. I think it was more of a battle of wills at the at the shoreline with the owners. It became a more of a fight than it was. Let's let, just try this naturally and let's not force it. But everybody else is, you know, they swim, and I've, I've tried very hard to bring that in. So I would say we do have water love now.
0: Nice, and and so I'm curious. You said that you're not a just a paper to paper to breeder. Uh, Obviously, obviously, you just explained like what you see is your priority, but at what point as a breeder, in your opinion, does the papers come into play? Like you see the dogs that that you like from, from each one. Is it really just that simple to where it's like, hey, we're missing water and you just go find a dog that has high water drive or, you know. No, kinda...
1: I, I, probably, I probably made it more simple yeah, than, yeah. you know, sounding more simple, but I do consider pedigree. You know, I do. I do look at show lines. I I do look at field lines. I do look at what the dogs are producing. So yeah, I look at that as well. And there are some field lines that have just been around forever, and they produce well consistently. So I've used those too. So yeah, I I consider that too. But I I do look at performance a lot. Like I would, I would breed to a solid hunting dog if I had hunted over that dog, and that dog brought everything I wanted to the table, and the pedigree wasn't really well known. I would use that dog.
0: How often would you say a show dog that you that you come across and and you find, uh, you know, I don't even know how to ask this question, really. You know, we we know that over time doing just show, just show, just show and only worrying about confirmation, you lose a little bit of the field, uh, field aspects that we we know and love about these dogs. But I'm kind of curious if, if, you, if you're open to breeding with show dogs, typically, like, what's the ratio of putting a show dog in the field that you're like, okay, there, there's some good hunting traits in that line still?
1: So, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I still use show dogs in my line if they bring what I'm looking for to the table. But they, typically, there's are show lines that have produced other field stuff, like maybe, you know, master hunters or senior hunters, that type of dog. Oddly enough, about five years ago, maybe six years ago, the Northern Michigan Wine Club is is based at my place. So all of our field events with that club are held here. So this guy comes up and he has this beautiful show dog, young dog. And, you know, I wanted to walk. I, I, I'd seen the guy online. I kind of wanted to see this dog. And this dog wasn't a huge running dog, but he was just so drop dead gorgeous on point and had tremendous water love that I used the dog. And I have one of his daughters that I kept, and I've used her in my breeding program, and she's produced very, very well. So, you know, they're out there. It's just a matter of deciding that, you know, there's nothing wrong with show lines as long as they bring field ability to the table, too.
0: And I think that's ultimately where I was getting at is... Is usually it's the people that do both, uh, but I mean, would you say that? Because I actually get asked this question quite a bit. Is you know, I, I bought this dog, but I, I didn't get it from a hunting line. It was a show line. I didn't didn't really know to even look at that. You know, so I get this asked from beginners all the time. Uh, how likely would you say that it's like you can you can bring a dog out of that? You know, to really kind of waken up their genetic instincts, so to speak.
1: So the bitch that I used with this the show mail was an extreme bitch. Pretty, pretty bitch. Smaller, but very extreme. And in fact, her her litter was the one that got the Invitational Breeders Award and the Utility Breeders Award. They've just brought a lot to the table. It was a really hot breeding. It was out of my very first utility prize one bitch, Bred to a Silver Shot. And that was that cross produced. They were really big, you know, the big running dogs, extreme dogs, but You know, once you got a saddle on them, they actually wanted to work. I I love the work ethic I got out of those dogs. But the female that I bred to the show dog needed something to tone her down because she was a lot of dog. All of them were. And they weren't the right dogs for a lot of people. Um, People that like, you know, to hunt the open prairies, not necessarily the best grouse and woodcock dogs. They could hold their own, but they weren't, you know, solid. They ran big in the woods. Let's put it that way. I'm trying to figure out how to make my words make sense. No, that so makes sense. Need, yeah, so she needed to be toned down a little bit. Very extreme water dog. I got a ton of water love out of the breeding, but I got really pretty dogs. And and I like that too. I like them to look like wimes. I don't wanna go sometimes the straight field dogs aren't as pretty. And I, I still believe that wimes should look like wimes. They should be within standard. They should look like the typical, not necessarily the straight show dog, because they tend to be a little bit more overdone, but they should look like sleek versions of that and they should be pretty on point. They should have water love. So I do believe in those things. And, you know, so far what I'm doing is working.
0: That's that's fantastic. I mean, it, it's, it sounds like you've kind of, you're incorporating it all. You know, you, you, you brought up water, you, you brought up the field and range, but you also recognize that the confirmation and the, and the style of the dog matters in this just as much, you know, it's, I think that can be lost on a lot of people to where they think that, Everything about the show ring is bad, and it's, it's really not. Is it, it, it all kind of goes into the same burrito, so to speak. It all matters to some extent.
1: It, it really, really does, and I felt the same way when I was showing and breeding horses. I, I feel like you have to have both. Not overdone on either side, but you have to have both. And you have to have to have biddable dogs, too. They can't be, you know, runoffs or, you know, black-hearted dogs that want to go off and do their own thing. Temperament's really important in this game, too.
0: So let's jump into that. The characteristics, the temperament, the, the range. Let's talk about generally what what the average or at least in your line, uh, acts like. You know, is it a wide range? Uh, or variance between dog to dog or do you got does your line generally have the same characteristics overall like for the most part
1: my, my yeah they do so so i'm gonna try to break that down a little bit so when i bred to the silver shot dog the first time and it was a great dog named Henri. his owner is a guy named craig kashik you might have heard of him he's yeah. a wonderful man he's, he's a he's a, a photographer author great guy dear friend so Henri was a lot of dog, probably a little bit too much for Craig, and Craig would probably admit that now. But when I saw that dog run his utility test, I just fell in love with him. I mean, he was beautiful. He didn't look like a typical field dog. He, was, he had good confirmation, tremendous water love, and I just felt that he would cross really well with, with Royal, who, like I said, she was my first utility prize one. And, she, it, and it did. They turned out the first litter produced a puppy that ran... His natural ability test against my wishes, actually, at just probably probably three months and three weeks, that and ended young. up getting <laughs> and, and, and ended up getting a prize one one twelve. There you go. So after that, I decided because I didn't keep a puppy out of the first breeding, thinking, oh, you know, no, no, not yet. But I really liked what I was seeing out of those pups, so I did the rebreed, and I kept one. And when I keep a puppy, it's usually the one that's just wild and nobody else wants. And they're like, ooh, we don't want that one, you know, climbing out of the whelping box at three weeks old, that type of dog. And I ended up, with the male that I have, he's my nine-year-old now, and he's a go-to guy. He's my go-to guide dog. He's, he, I ran him in utility. He was a prize two, an honest prize two. And he is, is still a lot of dog. But he's, a, he's, very, he's grown up. Let's put it this way. He's an adult now. He's my go-to guide dog. I take him out on you know, and woodcock hunts, and I take people out. I work for a local pheasant farm. But I also knew that I'm older now, and I knew that that was probably the last dog I wanted like him, you know, <laughs> because he was, he was a handful until he was five years old. And by the time he was five, I finally got him under control, and, and he was you know running events, and he breezed through his utility test. And he also, you know, got some wine club titles, which was a retrieving dog excellent, a shooting dog excellent. And I retired him. And now he's the dog that I take when I guide hunts. But I wanted a more watered down dog. So I bred, I bred a bitch that wasn't, she was a great grouse dog. I mean, just a fantastic grouse dog. So I, I line bred her to a dog named Schultz. Well, the dog wasn't Schultz, but one of his sons or grandsons. And I ended up getting a litter it still had a lot of juice, but they weren't as extreme as my nine-year-old. And that's what I wanted. I mean, I wanted a little bit more biddability at a younger age, and I really got that. They're still beautiful on point. they still tremendous water love. I mean, the two-year-old that I have out of that breeding is just a phenomenal dog. Natural duck search dog. I mean, you just open the truck and he's gone. He's out there searching. But he's super, super biddable. I mean, you can turn him on a whistle. He's, he's great in the woods. I hunted him last fall. I wanted to make sure that he got on a fair amount of woodcock and grouse. He did, he did well last fall. He was a year old. And then this spring I ran him on spring birds and I was just amazed at how much he learned from his hunting experiences. So that's the kind of dog I want now. Not quite as extreme. And now my dogs probably have more range than the typical, you know, show crosses out there, but they're, you know, I don't want them extreme anymore. I just, you know, that's not my kind of dog anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. tracking the whole time. So uh, just, to, just to clarify, what is y- your range? Like you said, they might range a little further than n- the normal one, but you are in Michigan, so you do grouse and woodcock hunt. What kind of range are we yes. talking?
1: So they're out of sight. I mean, you can't see them. You'll hear them. I still use a beeper system in the woods, and I want to know, you know where they're at so I can keep track of them, and I've never really found that the beeper affects grouse and woodcock much. So probably I would say... And again I'm guessing because I would say probably like maybe 40 yards, 30 yards. And you'll hear them around. I mean the good the good ones shorten up in the woods anyway. And I, that's one thing I've found too over the years that my natural woods dogs shorten up. You don't teach them that, they learn that. Right. 100 In the open prairies it's 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 they're much further out.
0: And that, and that's what we're going after, you know. We do all these testing and everything as as one of the elements is the the dog should adjust to range. You know, I think you I think you hear it a lot from people, but honestly, like I don't think enough people hunt different areas or different things to really understand what that entails. In my opinion, is they always just think like, oh yeah, if it gets thick stuff, then they they come in because they can't get through it. It's like no, if if you're targeting grouse and woodcock, you don't necessarily want that 200 yard dog. No, uh, you don't. You know that th- there are people that. That, like that you know it, good for you uh it works but for the average person uh, a 40 50 yard grouse dog uh is going to get them more opportunities on birds than the 200 yard dog if and you know on average correct yes kind of walk me through the temperament you said that's a big thing you're trying to lessen the load and and you know not have as much drive i guess uh is one way of putting it but you know for better or worse wimes have sometimes reputations for you know you hear it all the time soft dogs or maybe they're one person owners or they're only gonna hunt well for one person where are we at on on that you know the the common uh, theories or whatever people want to throw at the dog
1: so one of the things that I hear a lot in certain lines are soft dogs they're extremely difficult to train uh, many many years ago I bred you know my the first time I had it well as an adult I shouldn't say that because I had in my late 20s, a rescue wyman, that's a whole nother story right there. Um, so I, I bred to a field line, not knowing at the time that they were known to produce soft. And I ended up with some softness there. And I ended up keeping a bitch out of that. And I, I really had to be very careful in training her. Since then, I, I you know I bred her to a really tough field trial. Actually, he was a dual champion. And I ended up with dogs that were not quite as soft, but better. And since then, I've way improved on that, too. Um, they can take correction now. I, I, ma- I wanted to make sure that that didn't happen again. They're difficult to deal with. You know, I, I don't I don't want to say that you can't train them. You can, but in the wrong hands, it can be a mess.
0: So define soft, because I think that that label gets tossed around a lot to a, a number of different breeds. You know, the Wimes, uh, Munsties get it a lot. What in in your opinion qualifies as soft for a dog?
1: So what I saw with her is she, you know, she could. She was a she was great hunting dog. In fact, she became one of my greatest guide dogs as well. But if you raised your voice, and I mean, if I have multiple dogs, my son was still living at home, so every now and again you're yelling at your kid, and you know you could just see that she didn't like that. She didn't like loud or anything like that. I, I never put my hands on my dogs, really. So she, I, you know, I would never put my hands on her anyway. But even with other dogs, if other dogs would come up or, you know, if they were visiting and they'd posture to her, she'd go belly up to them. So I bred her to a dog with a much tougher temperament and, and proceeded to try to breed away from that. And I, I did. The dog, I have four dogs right now. None of them are soft. <laughs>
0: So, so in your opinion, when people label them as soft, it's kind of it falls into the misunderstanding to where, in my opinion, a lot of the times when people get uh, called dogs soft is usually oftentimes it's not really a correct assessment. It's almost as if the dogs are smarter uh, in a lot of ways. You know, you you need to be able to appeal to them in a different light than uh, what I would say the average handler is accustomed to. But, like, there are soft dogs that, you know, they, it's like they do just shut down. So, like, I want to clarify there is a, a difference to this. And and I think most dogs that are called soft aren't really soft. It's just you're having people that can't really relate to the dog. Would you agree with that at all?
1: Yeah, I do agree with that. And I, I was trying to figure out how... I, I would say that that particular bitch was the type of dog that you wouldn't want to put hands on repeatedly because I think that that would shut her down. I, you know, I don't know that for sure because I didn't do that. You know, I was smart enough to know if she looked like she was getting overwhelmed with anything, I'd just back off and, you know, try something different. Um, she, you know, she eventually went on to do, she was an NA prize one, one twelve two, And, you know, she got some retrieving titles and things like that. And, you know, once, once I figured her out, she was fine. But it was a matter of I think a dog like that you literally just can't. Some people can't shouldn't have their hands on dogs like that because I think they would ruin them.
0: Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I want to kind of go down that path a little bit more is as, as what you said is sure. knowing your dog a little bit to know where where it may not be the best decision to continue putting hands on the dog. That's kind of a, a skill or or an observation that sometimes takes years and multiple dogs for, for people to learn. What are some of the signs that that particular dog showed you that you're like, okay, I, d- I can't push through this. I need to retreat and kind of come at it from a different angle.
1: You know, so th- she she just passed last fall and she was 15 and a half. So she, so I got a, a long life out of her. <laughs> so just little things like on retrieving, she'd come, you know, and she'd almost like, I wouldn't say she'd come out of the water slowly and she'd kind of like set a duck down or set a bumper down. And just, I, you could just see it in her demeanor that she wasn't the type of dog you could grab her ear and drive her to the ground. You could tell that you know, you got to remember, I've been in the animal game my whole life, not only with dogs, but with horses too. So I'm pretty good at reading animals early on. And I realized she was that dog not to, you know, get upset, just work through it, figure her out, figure out a different way and move on. And I did. So,
0: and then you paired her up with a dog I that par- was a little bit more hard and and it seems to work out for you.
1: It, it did. And she, you know, the dog that I picked out was the type of dog that I knew his owner very, very well. And she was the type of gal and probably still is that will tell you everything negative about her dog before she tells (laughs) you anything positive. And so I had a feeling that the dog probably had some training baggage, but I really liked what she was saying about There was no quit in this dog. Tons of water love once again. And, you know, I really liked what she had to say and he wasn't being used much. And he had been with some really well-known trainers. I think, is it Bill West? I think that's his name. Mm -hmm. So he had been with him and he had said, why is no one using this dog? And I had talked to Ann enough to know that, you know, this dog brings a lot to the table. And I think he would be a great cross for my female. And it turned out he was, I, you know, I, that was my first NA breeders award and they were all one all four of them. So he, he just brought a lot. More, and again, he was a dual champion. So he brought some really nice looks to the table and he also brought some toughness. And, you know, I think that was, that was a really, really good litter, just super easy, natural bird dogs.
0: And have you noticed, have you done any importing or have you only been dealing with dogs that have been stateside? Have you brought any back from Germany?
1: So I have actually, I used a German import a couple, well, gosh, now I've just realized it's going to be seven years. He was a long hair though. Um, so I used him, but we've exported quite a few dogs. I have quite a few dogs in Europe.
0: The long hair that that you that <laughs> I started off with the exports or imports, but uh, the long hair that's something that we need to address too because there are a couple different. Uh, styles of coat to them. And in addition to, uh, I want to get your take on the blue Weimaraners and really just kind of give your take on the variety of these dogs. You know, how can we have the the short hair slick ones that most people are accustomed with, but then you also have this long haired version over here. And then you also have this version over here that, you know, that we call blue. Uh, Right. You know, there's a lot of variance between how these dogs can look, even though most of us have only seen one version of it for the most part.
1: So the long hair, the reason I use the long hair, I used to hunt in Manitoba a lot. I'd go visit Craig and Lisa and I, you know, a bunch of us would go, we'd all go in a big group. We'd rent this big cabin and I hunted over this long hair and he was just a phenomenal grouse dog. Just a really, really nice dog to watch. And he was very, very talented on grouse. And again, I like, I like good grouse dogs. I, that's, I'm a sucker for those. So, you know, genetic diversity too. I mean, there's a lot of people breeding to the same wimes over and over and over again, and that's you know that's their choice. But I don't like I don't like that part of it. I think that you can a male can be overused. So I really thought, well, that'd be nice to bring in that type of diversity into my line and see how it works out. I got great dogs. Um, they were a little bit slower to develop in the field than I'd like to see, and I think that comes from the long hair side of it. And, but, you know, once, once they got like their yearling mark, they were fine, but I think they're a little bit slower to point now that I look at. And, and that's just something that I thought, I think the long hair brought to the table, because when you look at his NA prizes, he failed NA twice on pointing. But again, I had hunted over him, so I knew it was there and I knew it developed. So long hairs and blues, well, this is what happened with long hairs and blues. There was one time, there was a time in, in the WCA, the Wine Club of America, that blues and long hairs were allowed by the AKC or, you know, by the WCA. And there was a group that decided that probably the blue was a mutt. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't have blues. I've never had blues. So I can't, I'm not an expert in this. So I'm speaking from what I was told. So there was a, a, like three votes that they brought to the WCA to get rid of the blue Weimar honor. They were doing well in the show ring. I'm not clear on the politics of all of it, but this is what I was told that they decided to vote them out. So the first vote, they tried to vote the blues and the long hair blues out and they, they, it didn't pass. Second round, they came in with blues and I think long hairs and it didn't pass. Third time around, they added blues, black coats and long hairs and it passed so they were kicked out of the wca akc still allows blues to compete in akc events and they allow long hairs to compete in akc events but not wca events so that's that's my probably limited knowledge of the history of all of that because that happened you know probably back in the 70s and our our wimes were hunting dogs that's what we did with our wimes when i was a kid we didn't do events at all and they just you know we just hunted them
0: when you had the long hair, it, is it is it really just genetically speaking? I mean, did did it change your kennel or line at all? Did it you know? Did you just use it the same as you would any other wine and work it into the program, or did you kind of treat it a little different, knowing that that confirmation gene was was a different than what the rest of your line was?
1: So, because I don't have long hair carriers, I didn't get any long hairs. I I got all long hair carriers, but I did not get any long hairs. Some of them had what you'd call maybe a stock car coat, which is a thicker kind of curly coat, but they're not, they're not, I didn't get any long hairs. And I I knew that going into it, that I wasn't going to get any long hairs and that's not really what I'm breeding for. I just thought, because I had hunted over the dog, he does have, you know, did have a tremendous amount of water love and he, you know, had a really beautiful coat. It wasn't like a setter coat. It was more like a, trying to describe it, probably like a, maybe a Field Gordon, shorter, silky they don't t- they don't tend to get a lot of burrs, so it, well, you know they're definitely not it. like a setter coat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and again, I got thicker coats, but I didn't really get anything. You know, they all look like wimes. They don't look like long hairs at all. And I, I've never, i I have not used a blue, so I can't really answer much about them. Gotcha.
0: Well, let's jump into kind of your training mentality uh, with them. You know, obviously every dog is different. So, you know, this is going to be the general uh, speech here. But, you know, how quick are you developing the typical pup out out of your lines? You know, and what are you starting with? I I guess I should start with.
1: So, you know, we we let them be puppies. If you can get a, a solid bird season out of them, we do. We, uh, I, I had two litters last year of my own and then my co-breeder had her litter. Uh, you actually, you actually, I don't know that you met my co-breeder's husband. You thought it was my husband, but it's not, it's hers. Okay. Um, so he was at the Ames and Rules Clinic in, I think, Minnesota. Yeah. Is that where you were? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he was there and they actually are my neighbors as well. I'm looking at their house right now. They're right down the driveway from me.
0: Well, that's convenient.
1: <laughs> oh, it's, it's actually a great partnership because they help me with a lot of things and we all train dogs together. So getting back to training, what we intro our puppies to birds, you know, when they're old enough to get out in the field and jump through grasses and so on. And sometimes we see them lock hard on point early, like as early as eight, nine weeks. And then sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit longer. It just depends on, but we always see rock solid points, you know, long, long before their natural ability tests. And so I had some test at seven months old in August and they they did w- well. I mean, their field work was great. One didn't swim. One was a one twelve, and he was seven months.
0: So typically, I mean, your pointing is there. Uh, mm-hmm. What what about the retrieving? Are you like you get the dogs? You, you're you're getting them out in the field. You're trying to bring that natural ability on the pointing and everything. Uh, what else are you doing to kind of cultivate and expose the dog while still allowing the puppy to be a puppy?
1: We just so we just go out in the field and. You know, we we toss a lot of pigeons, let them chase a little bit. Once we see that they're interested, sometimes they stop to flush. We will actually put birds out for them and see what they do. A lot of times it's just a, a pigeon. Um, and we we just let them develop as they, as they do. The retrieving on Wimes is something that they just have. Most of them, you know, probably 90% of them are natural retrievers that don't require any force fetch. And that's just the way it is. It's
0: a nice thing yeah i mean that's one of the things that i've read about a lot you know there there's commonalities uh between a lot of wines, and some of those commonalities are water work and retrieving typically is is something that's common throughout have you noticed that you know typically in a lot of breeds you know one breed that is really really strong in their pointing instinct they may slack off in retrieving or vice versa uh have you seen any of that in in other lines and uh within the Weimaraner breed.
1: You know, I, I be, because uh my co-breeders share the same lineage that I share. It's it's hard for me to to say that. Speak to that, yeah. Yeah, because I, we see the same dogs and I've seen, you know, my dogs all come from the same stuff, you know, from over 20 years ago. And the truly in my in my thing, the only wine that I the only two wines that I've actually force fetched myself and it wasn't really a hardcore force fetch, it was a recall and Hold were two of my males. Just make sure that they're going to hold it and bring it to me. And that's you know. Other than that, that was about all I did.
0: Yep. And, and really, I mean, I I've recently a number of months ago did a force fetch series, and every single guest throughout that series uh, emphasized just hold and, and recall. In a, in a lot of them. But I mean, ninety percent of force fetch is is hold. You you really do the hold training right. You know, the rest of force fetch kind of just steers itself almost. Yes. True. Very true. But it it would also be nice to have dogs that you know necessarily you don't have to force fetch, which it sounds like what you're you're going for in this. Talk to me. You said that you prioritize the grouse and woodcock hunting, but what about the waterfowl? And do you, does your line do much blood tracking at all, or anything like that?
1: That's another thing that they are naturals at. I've got qu- I don't deer hunt anymore, but when I was married, my my ex, we used our wimes a lot to blood trail. And a lot of my puppy owners that deer hunt as well use theirs to blood trail, so they're really good at that. I, I, you know, the history is that there's probably some hound in the wyme, and I would I would believe it because they do really really well on tracking, and they also do really well without a whole lot of training on blood trailing.
0: And and so that's not something that you you even focus on. You you don't even do any drills to expose them to this. It's just kind of like it, it sounds like you just. You pair the right dogs up, you go through the breeding, and then you're, you're just kind of really just relying on the dog to progress its, at its natural pace. You're not really putting drills on it or exposing it to specific things. It sounds like you just, I mean, truly, you are just letting a dog be a dog.
1: So I'll tell you, if, you, if we have time, about my very first blood trail, at, the very first one I ever did. The dog was probably 14 months old. He had run his natural ability test and one of our neighbors shot a deer. He knew it was hit. He, pro- he knew it was probably mortally wounded and it's, he comes knocking at our door. We were actually just sitting down to dinner and he's like, can you guys help me? And he's like, can you, can you bring the dog? And I'm like, sure. I didn't have a harness or anything. So I've got him on a check cord. I didn't have any gloves. We rush away from dinner, go off into the woods my ex had a flashlight. This guy had a flashlight. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I didn't have a flashlight. So I'm hanging on to the dog for dear life. We put him on the blood and that dog took off and was literally dragging me through the woods. I'm not kidding when I said, I mean, we are flying through the woods and he's pulling me head to the ground, tracking this thing. I'm really not watching where I'm going because I'm trying to stay with the dog. They're running behind me with flashlights. I'm getting hit in the face with branches and it's fast. It's fast. It's fast. I'll be darned, that dog dragged me right to that deer. Now, sadly, the deer jumped and took off, and we could not recover it after that. So I assume, you know, it just got into either a swamp or something. We we couldn't pick up the trail again. But it was like a rush because it went on probably for 15 minutes before we found that deer. But he was step for step. He had never been on a blood trail. Mm. It was really cool. I mean, it was a super great rush. And every time I could get him out on a blood trail after that, I was all about it. It was a lot of fun.
0: Hey, that's something I wish that here in America we did more of is, is blood trailing certifications or, or just something to throw in on this because I think a lot of people just think like, oh, a dog has a nose. You go put it on a blood trail and it's going to follow it around. It's like, nah, when when you see a good tracking dog do its work, you have a whole new perspective and respect for it. And I mean, when you have a dog that is yanking you down that trail to go find that target. Uh, it's just a really cool thing to to see for those that haven't really seen it and maybe they've only seen like a pheasant track and and I'm just letting you know it it is not the same thing.
1: No, I no and I, you're exactly right. It was it was a huge rush and he he successfully did several blood trails in his lifetime. He died 3 years ago at 15 and a half. So it was he was a fun fun dog. I just wish I had done more in later years because I think he would have really liked that. But you know, I don't, I don't deer hunt anymore. I don't have time. I I do too many other things. So, you know, I try to bird hunt and guide as much as I possibly can just to keep out there.
0: And so are you guiding locally there in Michigan?
1: There's a, there's a local pheasant preserve that I work at fairly often. Usually it's right, you know, during deer season when everything shuts down or the rest of the winter, once our bird season shuts down. And I do some fall hunts that type of thing. But I do I do guide grouse and woodcock hunts for people I know. I'm not really comfortable going into the woods with people I don't know. I know that sounds paranoid, but
0: No, no. I mean, no. if you don't know who you're going into the woods with on wild birds and shotguns and you, you, right, you, exactly. you gotta be comfortable with who you're who you're with. Some people are comfortable with strangers. Uh, I'm with you. I'm I'm not. I've Right. I've done a few preserved guide hunts and even kinda, you know, call it what you will, staged, liberated, pin raised, what whatever the heck it is, you know for a fact is like, hey There's a bird get ready. And how many people have you seen that just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to sit in the field with you anymore. I don't trust you with a shotgun and you go put them in the wild bird field or woods with you. That's, that changes it even more.
1: Yeah, I don't do that. I, I, and even, even the preserve hunting, I'm, I'm kind of bossy because probably what I did for a living. So I don't have any trouble telling someone you know, w- what the rules are and how to shoot and where to be and all that stuff. So
0: And so you, you guide for friends and family, so to speak. Are you actually like guiding friends and family or are they just joining you in on a hunt?
1: In the woods, I'll take people I know, like friends and family, I'll take them out. Like I've got these two gals coming the end of the month that, you know, they, they aren't really woods hunters, but because they're going to be here during bird season and I'm not going to waste time, I, I'm taking them out. But I decided it's going to be their dogs and I'm the only shooter. So they're just going to walk through the woods with me with their dogs and get their dogs exposed to some wild birds. And if we have the opportunity and and the dogs point, we'll shoot some birds.
0: Too easy. I mean, it it sounds like it's just a nice chill just go out and and we'll see what we see. how many people have fallen in love with Wimes just because you go guide a hunt with them at the preserve or the woods? It doesn't really matter. I mean, it often I, I s- t- say that a lot of people kind of make their decision on which breed to get based on whichever first pointing dog they saw go on point. that kind of sticks with them in their head. Have you kind of seen that transition over with the Wimes as well?
1: I have, actually. I, I guided a guy. This This would have been many, many, many years ago. And he just got his third whine from me because (laughs) after I guided him, he's like, what do I, what do I need to do to get one of these dogs? And, you know, so we're good friends. I've watched his kids grow up, you know, one's graduated now and they were toddlers when I met these people. So yeah, that happens a lot. And the nine-year-old that I guide with has like a huge fan club over at the Pheasant Preserve because he puts on one heck of a show. I mean, he's, he's kind of like a showman. He's a great tracking dog. And he tracks these birds and he will pin them. And I'll tell him he's, he hasn't worked it out yet. And all of a sudden I'll say, there it is. And you can walk in and work the bird. And he just he's, he's like a showman. I actually had this group of young men. I didn't know them. I do guide for strangers over there. This group of young men that I'm guiding. And this I hear them walking up. The dog finally pins the bird. And I'm walking up to work the bird. And I'm kind of bringing them around with my hands. And I hear this guy say behind me, you know, he goes, I don't care if I disappoint my parents or my girlfriend, but... I don't want to disappoint goose and he's talking about my dog. It was hysterical. So I'm like walking up laughing hysterically because this is just the funniest thing I've heard, but that's the way they felt about it. They didn't want to disappoint me or the dog. They just wanted to shoot a lot of birds and it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, and I mean I can relate to that. The shame of missing a bird does <laughs> does not equate to that evil look that the dog gives you. This is like, really, I did my part. You can do yours. Especially when they're just sitting there, and if you, if you miss a few times in a row, uh, that that stink eye gets gets even heavier. You get that stink eye even more often when when you're in a shooting slump, for sure.
1: Oh, totally true. Totally <laughs> true.
0: Well, Camille, what are we missing uh, about this breed? Like we said, there's been a lot of ups and downs. I think there's a ton of lessons here uh, for any breed that just kind of rises and and lowers in popularity, ebbs and flows. But, you know, this was one of the ones that, again, to repeat what we started with, it's kind of had multiple rises and falls and, and not all breeds that have, have fallen can kind of claim that. It's it's just really fascinating to me that, you know, the wonder dog turns into, you know, the show dog. And then now here we are again and it's starting to rise in popularity. I, I just it to me, that's still the kind of the underlying theme with Wimes. Is there anything else that that we're missing?
1: You know, I, I like I told you, I really can't figure it out. I know the popularity. Popularity of the breed in Navda has really gone up. A lot more people running. The success rate is is much better than it was. So I I don't know how this is going to end. All I know is that I I have stayed the course. You know pretty much my my life. And since I've been breeding them on my own, that I just want to produce solid hunting dogs for hunters. And I really haven't changed that. I I mean it's nice that they do well in Novda, and it's nice that my breeding program is working out and it's it's showing and it's it's you know making the kennel look good. But I still am really just trying to reduce hunting dogs for hunters. So I I don't know how this is gonna end. I, I do know that there's been a big, huge surge with people running NA or in, you know, Wimes wanting to get, you know, breeders award breeders. And so I, I don't know. It's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out in ten more years.
0: Well, when you figure it out, you figure put your finger on the pulse <laughs> and you figure out why it, it's it's going, but it's going up kind of organically it seems like it's it's going at the right pace it doesn't seem like you it's just boom all of a sudden everybody has wimes. and uh you know you figure it out maybe it, it kind of gives some other breeds hope still that are dwindling you know maybe maybe there is hope to bring back the the staple field lines of irish setters or or golden r- retrievers or something like that you know to where more or less the uh, the show ring kind of they they did some damage to those breeds
1: well, you know, there's a there's a huge difference between the straight show whimes and the field bread wimes. I'm kind of in the middle, but there's a big difference in the looks of both. And that, I don't know that that can ever be repaired unless people, you know, on the field side and the show side can come together. I I, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I, I just don't see it getting any better. I mean, you have a few people from the show side that are running NAVDA. A lot of them, you know, have their dogs pro-handled and that's fine. Um, I, I still like to train my own dogs and I keep saying I'll train my own dogs until I can't. But I think that, you know, the, 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 Diff, the rift between the show and field side is still there. I don't know that that's ever, I don't even know that it's repairable at this point.
0: Well, that's uh, that's another topic for another day. Maybe we can right. kind of do a, a big summit meeting with all the different breeds and breed clubs sure. that, that have it. But uh, I mean, it is really interesting. I, you know, if you kind of figure something out, let me know. I find it pretty fascinating. And uh, again, Camille, thanks for making time for us and, and coming on and sharing the great ghost story. It's, uh, I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Sure. Great talking with you, Nick.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Well, we'll check back next week, guys. Take care. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Camille Rice on Wimes. I thought it was an interesting conversation and something that's actually come up uh, and requested a few times from listeners throughout the throughout the months and years that we've been doing this. It seems like, uh, as we talked about on the episode, that wine seem to be growing in pop, uh, popularity again, and hopefully they can uh, stay on the right side of this. And, and people like Camille Rice and the breeders that really care and, and have devoted a all their time and energy and resources into uh, keeping the field bred lines what they are. Hopefully they continue to do what they do. And uh, there, there's a lot of forewarning and, and good, um, I don't know, uh, things to consider amongst all breeds when you start looking at some of the breeds such as the Wimes and the Golden Retrievers or, or any of these other breeds that they've been proven in the field, but for whatever reason, maybe they go into the pet side of the world and some of those field bred lines kind of get washed out and turned into show lines, whatever. It's uh, it's just a good reminder that just because you your breed and, and your preference is solid right now, you know, if, if you don't stay up on the standards and, and requirements and breeders that really care about this stuff, then uh, you can you can water down those lines, uh, pretty quickly. And, and it, it can happen a lot quicker than what most people think. But, uh, anyway, you know, not, not to rehash everything that we talked about on that episode, I really enjoyed catching up with her and glad we could finally make that happen. And this isn't going to be a very long outro. We actually just got back not too long ago from uh, a week in Montana. So I'm running a little bit short on sleep. So I'm going to start wrapping this up, but yeah, it's, uh, the, the trip you're going to hear a lot more about it. We haven't recorded it yet, but it's going to come up soon. So, wh- whether it's next week or the following, you'll hear about uh, our trip to Montana, which was honestly, I, I've been trying to think about it. it. It may have been one of the best hunting trips I've been on. Uh, it's very rewarding in a lot of ways. Uh, still had our learning curves and our ups and downs, of course, that you're going to have on every hunting trip. But as far as success and knocking out all of our uh, check boxes, so to speak, for the trip, it, it, it was a blast. And so I can't wait to share more information with you on that. Uh, another thing on what's going on with me is on the way back from Montana is we picked up a new puppy. So, you know, I, I've been referencing it for a few months now here and there, little side comments. I've been I've been looking for a pup and uh, we we uh, picked one up on the way home from Montana, so the timing worked out perfectly to where it, it was just on the way, and, and it saved me a little bit of gas and a little bit of time. Just to pick it up, and in the one shot coming way back, uh, coming on the way back from the trip. So we have her home. It's uh, it's another female. Wasn't originally supposed to be a female, but you know. Stuff happens. It was uh, originally supposed to be a male, but that changed over to a female once uh, once all the picks and, and everything kind of got settled out. And uh, I'm excited to have her home. We uh, it's a whole new generation. It's a it's a whole new experience. It's the puppies, man. It's I didn't miss the puppy experience. You know, I'm one of those guys that uh, I enjoy puppies once you get a few months into it. But right out of the gate, you know, it's besides being cute and funny uh, that Th- they're puppies you know There, there's certain things that you're going to have to work around within your lifestyle and routine but uh we haven't even given her a name yet we're trying to figure out her personality and hopefully we have that picked out over the next day or two but i'm sure you're going to hear a lot more about that puppy as we move along uh, because it's just exciting stuff and, and the no matter what people think about uh, puppies, whether they like them, love them, hate them, whatever, uh, you can't deny just how much fun it is to have a new beginning, a, a clean slate, and and you're daydreaming of what that dog can be moving forward. So I'm excited to see what she can become. But uh, again, short short outro this week. Uh, typical housekeeping. Check out our Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash Gundogit Yourself. We have some bonus episodes up there on that uh early access to our profile episodes and we have a lot of video and and cool stuff coming down the pipe for patreon so please consider to sign up for that if you support this podcast and you want to you know help uh help us in our efforts in bringing even better content coming down the road uh here in the future besides that if you can't or don't want to join patreon then please consider just hit that subscribe button and the easiest way to help out the podcast is simply to to just share it, whether that's sharing an actual episode with somebody that may find some value in it or sharing it on social media, either way it helps get the word out. And uh, that is the cheapest, quickest, easiest way for you to support the podcast. And we genuinely appreciate every single one of you that uh, that shows that support by sharing it with somebody else. And then uh, that leads right on into social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook under Gundogget Yourself check us out uh again follow along hit like share all that fun stuff again we thank everybody for tuning in and listening to us we can't wait for you guys to hear some of the exciting stuff and and new content that we're trying to put together for you guys it's been a long time in the making for some of it but i'm really looking forward to it and with that being said i'm going to wrap this up again thanks for listening to the conversation with camille rice and uh, we'll check back next week Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.